This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We began the week talking with our Zoomer squad about the big Rogers outage the Friday before. It was certainly a crisis for Canadians. Regular internet users were affected, but so was the healthcare and 911 emergency system, along with disruptions for small business and the banking industry. Peter Mugridge is senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Daryl Bricker is CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, and David Kravitz is chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. Libby started the conversation by asking if some demographics, like older seniors, were left more vulnerable during the outage. Seniors, first of all, are vulnerable all the time. When there's a blizzard, seniors are more vulnerable. When something goes down, seniors are more vulnerable because it's a higher population in absolute numbers of people who are alone, possibly isolated, don't have a support system nearby, are less mobile. So it is very serious, and I think we have to take a hard look at um, what is the infrastructure really and how solid is it really. This was a 15-hour, this wasn't just a a short-term glitch where you could go to your neighbor and get something done. This was like a massive nationwide problem, and uh, I'm not surprised that lives were at risk uh, as a result of this. Daryl, is this going to involve permanent damage to Rogers? Well, I think the, the, uh, the, the potential damage is much bigger than just to Rogers. I mean, if this is at the tail end or even midway through, you know, history will tell us of a whole series of things that just don't seem to be working in this country that are basic infrastructure. So if this was just, the, you know, this, an, an outage by Rogers and everything else was going fine, and remember, Rogers is a federally regulated institution uh, by the, the, the CRTC, uh, but this follows on the, in, along with airports not working, the passport system not working, hospitals, you know, emergency rooms not working, a whole bunch of things that are considered to be basic services not working. And what this does is adds up to the sense that uh, something's not going right in this country. And it's just kind of one more piece of evidence that uh, are putting people on the, uh, giving people the view that this country is not on the right track. So it's, I think it's more about, it's about much more than just the outage that took place. I totally agree with you, but even on the outage that just took place, Peter, I mean, you know, we've all been uh, bundling because it's cheaper that way. We've been cutting the cord. We've been getting rid of our landlines uh, and and even older people are have been doing that. So do you see a backlash against that? Yeah, the the problem with the backlash is uh, where you're going to go. You know, like um, <laughs> Tweedledum and Tweedledee. You're going to go to Bell, and then it's going to happen to Bell, or you're going to go to Bell, and then Rogers is going to offer an enticing package for you to go back. So there's really 
there's really very little competition in Canada, and and if if the um, the Rogers Shaw deal goes through, there'll be even less. And um, I think what happens is when you have these huge uh, monopolies, and something goes wrong with one of them, there's no <laughs> there's no one else to pick up the slack. There's no one else to turn to. Like half the nation is is off their phone, and half can't go um, to the you know buy stuff unless they have cash. And you know people, especially people living in rural. Uh, Canada, which a lot of older people, they're they're. What happens if if they have a heart attack? Like, how do they connect? Exactly. You, there's no way you can't you can't sort of go out near rooftop and shout, or because there's no one there to hear you. So um, th- these kind of things happen when you you have so few players owning the whole market. And um, I, I hope the Roger Shaw deal is affected by this. I hope it's taken into consideration. I don't think it will. But um, we certainly need more players than, than these two giants. The length of time it took them to issue either um, an alert or even a, a, and much later an apology, and uh, it, it they just they don't care. They they have half the market and they don't care. I wanted to extend this to beyond you know just Rogers and looking at Rogers. I mean, it's like blaming a cat for killing a bird. A cat's just going to do what a cat's going to do. The real issue that we're dealing with here is the regulatory environment allowed this situation to occur. The real issue that we're dealing with in this country that allowed this situation to be created was a regulatory system that does not support competition in this country. Daryl Bricker is CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Peter Mugrich is senior editor of Zoomer magazine. And David Kravitz is chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Monday, we talked more about the Rogers fiasco with Dr. Richard LeBlanc, professor of governance, law, and ethics at York University. That same day, the industry minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, had called the CEOs of the big telecom companies together for a meeting about how to prevent a similar situation in the future. Libby got the conversation going by asking Dr. LeBlanc, what, if anything, is the government likely to do about this? And what about customers? Is it time to unbundle services? And what about Rogers' controversial $26 billion merger with Shaw that is yet to be approved? I'm not sure that it should be a closed-door meeting. It, uh, The minister, this is a public issue. And I think the, this, the, I mean, if this had happened in the United States, the three telecom CEOs would be, would be swearing an oath uh, and would be in front of a panel of uh, elected politicians answering questions. So it's not clear to me why the meeting is behind closed doors to begin with. You mentioned the hack. I, you know, this, I was actually working because I I was working around, you know, 4.45, 5 a.m. And and then it went down and, you know, like 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock. And I went outside and I checked the wires and I called a technical assistant around 7 a.m. And he said, it's across Canada. Um, And we had not heard anything from Rogers until about 9 a.m. I, my first thought, and I've been through cyber breaches with, with advising uh, a board that ultimately made a payout to Russian threat actors. The first thing I thought of when it was nationwide was was a Russian threat actor attempting to secure a Bitcoin payment. And, uh, and I think Rogers did not, in my view, adequately come out during the course of the day with even, 
even to the best of our knowledge, information, and belief, this is not a hack. That would have been helpful for Canadians. So I think the way that they managed the crisis was was not uh, ideal. Um, you also mentioned, com- you know, the, the sector uh, competition uh, law. I mean, you know, competition, enhancing competition is one way to get at this, but a market-based solution um, by admitting other telecoms, um, w- w- you know, is one way to go. But normally, it, it's a lack of federal regulation um, over the internal controls. I mean, a maintenance upgrade should not result in in the paralysis of networks across Canada. So there's a, a number of lessons to be learned here. You know, one is crisis management. Two is um, is is the role of the government. There were there were nine one one. It wasn't possible. Land. It did not work in emergency situations. So I think what what I'm hearing from Canadians is that this telecom now is increasingly becoming so important, almost like sort of communication and electricity is was you know thirty or forty years ago that there needs to be a public good. There needs to be public. There needs to be strengthened regulation over switching um, and redundancy so that when uh, but, an outage uh, does happen, you can switch. You believe the explanation then? Uh, well, again, I have no way of validating that it. It's an assertion uh, by the CEO. I'm not questioning the CEO's integrity, but it happened twice in 15 months. I fault, I don't just fault Rogers. I fault the federal government. And I guess that's where I'm, I'm leading to this, particularly the CRTC and Industry Canada. And I regularly work with regulators, and I, I can tell you that when I, for, for example, a financial regulator, let's take OSFI that regulates all the banks and, and, and uh, across Canada. The level of regulation of a financial institution in Canada is night and day. I mean, it's, it's, it's right into the actual internal controls that are used over banking transactions. So I think um, you know, one regulator said to me recently that that uh, threat actors and telecoms are at a high school level. Sorry, telecoms are at a high school level, and threat actors are at a World Cup level. Threat actors and and uh, regulators uh, regulators are at a high school level. So I think regulators, when it comes to technology, are playing catch up. What would you like to leave us with? Well, we we and I, I don't mean to be overstating this. We dodged a bullet, and uh, I think that it's incumbent on the government to be transparent and to strengthen uh, oversight of telecoms so that we, we don't have uh, a, a third uh, kick at the can. We've had two in 15 months. The writing is on the wall. Eyes need to be wide open, and we need to have meetings in public. Dr. Richard LeBlanc, Professor of Governance, Law and Ethics at York University. Later that day, the industry minister spoke publicly about how he's given a directive to the major telecoms to come up with a plan in 60 days that will ensure Canadians and services will be covered by the other telecoms if one of them goes down. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, COVID wave number seven hits Ontario. What this means for us and how we should protect ourselves next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. We here in Ontario learned earlier this month that we're in a seventh wave of COVID-19. What does this mean? And how do we protect ourselves when hardly anyone is wearing a mask and pretty well all the other protocols have been lifted? Joining me on Tuesday, Dr. Karen Bourne, Assistant Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. It is hard to believe that we are in the seventh wave of COVID-19 and even hard to, harder to believe that it's in the summer months uh, where, you know, many people were very hopeful that the warm weather would mean uh, that we wouldn't see another wave so soon after uh, the last, uh, the sixth wave of Omicron, which happened around February and March. Uh, it is being driven by uh, the BA5 variant of uh, Omicron. It is more infectious than um, prior variants of COVID-19. What we've seen from other jurisdictions, places like South Africa, uh, Portugal, uh, where BA5 is dominant, uh, is that it, it is um, more infectious so, uh, and it does evade uh, immunity. So even if you've had a recent COVID-19 infection, you can still get BA5. But um, in other jurisdictions, they haven't seen the same sharp rise in hospitalization and severe illness. Uh, especially among vaccinated individuals, uh, as they did with, you know, the earlier uh, waves of um, of COVID-19. So what are you and your colleagues on the science advisory table suggesting to us here in Ontario? I mean, every time I go to Loblaws, fewer and fewer people are wearing their masks. Is this is this advice that in congregate settings we do mask up? So, I mean, it's been two years since the pandemic, over two years since the pandemic has started. And certainly there are, you know, uh, as opposed to across the board measures, you know, those closures, uh, people being advised to stay at home, uh, we're in a different time. And we're in a different time for a number of different reasons. One is that we have excellent uh, vaccines that do a really good job of protecting people and reducing uh, severe illness and hospitalizations. And we also have very high uptake of these vaccines among the population. Uh, the challenge is, is that the definition of what being fully vaccinated means keeps changing. So initially it was two doses of the vaccine. Now it's three doses. So if uh, you or a loved one hasn't yet had uh, a booster dose, if you're eligible, then a third dose, then you should have that. And in fact, uh, there's been a lot of discussion now about fourth doses, which are available in Ontario currently for people who are 60 plus or immune compromised. So if you think that you or a loved one may be eligible for a fourth dose, that's something to talk to uh, your doctor or a pharmacist about. Um, and in terms of masks, we also know, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, people were sewing masks out of cloth. Uh, we know now that there are good quality, high quality masks like an N95 or medical surgical mask. That even if people around you, particularly if you're wearing an N95, even if people around you are not masking, the, that mask can still protect you mm -hmm. as an individual. Um, so those are some things that we can do uh, to keep safe uh, at this time. And, and you know, at a different time, the seventh wave, we, we, we have learned uh, b better how to live uh, with, with this virus. True. Uh, and we and we all act accordingly. We don't get as close to each other in one on one yes. conversations. We kind of go around each other in the hallways. I mean, everybody's body language has changed. Definitely. Mm -hmm. um, and for those of us who are under 60 and we are waiting uh, on this widened eligibility for people under 60 to be announced. Uh, would you consider us still fully vaccinating, uh, fully vaccinated with a third shot if we got the third shot back in December? 
So that's a great question. I think that the language of fully vaccinated is something that we need to do away with. And it's more up to date on your vaccinations because really um, the guard post keeps changing. And it's hard for me to speak to what, you know, each individual situation, because we've also seen uh, immunity comes both from the COVID-19 vaccines, but also from prior infections. And there have been huge waves, particularly with Omicron, of infections in Ontario. And having a prior infection does give some immunity. The challenge is with BA5 is that a recent infection and even vaccination doesn't mean that people are not getting infected with COVID-19. But if you have um, had a recent infection, um, and, and importantly, if you've been uh, vaccinated, uh, much less likely to have uh, severe illness or need to be hospitalized. Dr. Karen Bourne, Assistant Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Wednesday, we learned that eligibility for fourth doses of COVID vaccine would be expanding to include all adults under the age of 60. Some of the credit in making this happen goes to Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murth, an Ottawa-based family physician and medical anthropologist who writes about health policy and politics. She joined me on Tuesday, along with epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. I started the conversation by asking Dr. Kaplan-Murth how she got involved in pushing for more fourth shots. So on June 27th, we had registered 730 people in the Ottawa area to come and get their booster. All people previously considered high risk and prioritized for their third dose back in December. And the province phoned Ottawa Public and told them they were absolutely to give us the vaccine. So Public Health phoned us and said, yeah, sorry, we can't give it to you because Ontario won't let us. And um, asked, well, what is going to happen to that vaccine? And basically they said, well, they might give it to pharmacies, but pharmacists are also having to throw it out because they can't give it to anybody under 60 either. The crux of it is that people should be um, allowed to consent to receive the vaccine, which is safe and effective. And um, we are disproportionately disadvantaging poor people, uh, as well as women. And the reason poor people and women are are more disadvantaged here is because uh, if you look at who can't jump into a car and go and hunt for a vaccine, who can't just drive to the United States or drive around Quebec looking for a vaccine, those are people who don't have the money to do so. Um, and the privilege to do so. The people who are going to get sick are all the people who have to work in jobs that bring them face-to-face with other people. All of that population uh, is desperate for a booster, and we're all under the age of 60. So um, so there's just many grounds on which to argue that we should have access to vaccine. A vaccine is otherwise being thrown out. And in answer to everybody's question, well, should we not just wait for a new vaccine in the fall? Yeah. We don't know when that vaccine will be available. Maybe it'll be available sometime in October. Um, nine against you ten, you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to hunt for it. And those same people are, again, not going to be prioritized. Let's go over to Dr. Tim Sly now. Uh, this is uh, ever since the beginning, way in the beginning. Remember, almost three years ago, we were we pointed out there's nothing black and white with this pandemic. Everything is shades of grey in between, which of course affects all the decisions. I think what we have here is uh, even the variation with the the deadline for starting the fourth. Israel, I think, says virtually anybody in over eighteen. 
uh, some of the provinces are at 50, uh, 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we have to push back a little bit and look at the real evidence here, clearly there's a priority list. Uh, I mean, you go down the priority list, the third dose is clearly where the biggest benefit comes, the biggest bang for the buck between the, the basic primary two and up to three, that's where the protection lies. The fourth dose is an additional bit, but it's not that much more. But on the other hand, we've got a now we've got a situation where we have to recognize hospitalization rates today are something like three times what they were this time last year. We're entering now a new a new couple of members of the Omicron family who moved in there, B four and five, and there's a couple of others on the horizon as well. Uh, masks have gone. Uh, personally, I think the mandate for that was a little too soon to drop them, uh, mm-hmm. and people are t- it's difficult to get them back now. I think if you could. so, there's a lot of reasons to say we should be boosting up what other protections we have, and so I think that uh, having said that, I think uh, yeah, it's about time to begin to think that uh, maybe we should begin to and the prospect of wasting vaccine. I mean, that is just horrendous. Yes. Uh, and and the last little bit I'll add on to this little tirade thing is that we have uh, around the world many countries who haven't even got to the f- sorry fully vaccinated with the first vaccine yet, and all the vac- all the variants are coming from these places where there's a high amount of replication. So we got to do everything we can to get the r- the rest of the world vaccinated. Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University, and Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murth, an Ottawa-based family physician and medical anthropologist. Our conversation took place the day before it was announced that eligibility for fourth shots would be expanded to include all adults. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Sita in Mississauga phoned about getting her fourth COVID shot. Doctors, you are doing a great job pushing the booster for all since we're heading to another wave. And a quick tip, I called shoppers last week and they're booked until August. I phoned the small independent drugstore and I was asked to come in the same day, which was very short notice. We couldn't make it. But the next day we went and we're fully, we got all our booster up to date. Margaret in Niagara called about getting her fourth shot. I just went shopping a couple of weeks ago up on Lundy's Lane here in town. And I noticed the Rex uh, drugstore had a sign of fourth, uh, fourth doses. Come on in. I went in, 10 minutes later, I'm out. I've got my shot. I'm 69. They ha- they were giving it to anybody that wanted it. So no waiting, no registering, just nice and easy. Nice, nothing. I just hopped in the car and got pulled out my phone and phoned everybody I knew. And all my friends went up there and got theirs right away. So it was so easy. 
Nina in Toronto phoned about her decision to keep a landline when we were discussing the Big Rogers outage. When I was researching saving an extra $86 a month, I decided not to switch because I, in my research all those years ago, and as people are already saying now, they called it a home phone, which sound, it's semantics. It was a home phone, true, you got to keep your number, but it wasn't using hard wires mounted to your house and out, out onto the street. Bell Canada does that as well. They, over, they offer a service like a home phone, but a real hardwired phone is, is only offered, and I don't work for Bell or anything, but it's only offered from Bell Canada, the old-fashioned uh, way of, of doing it. Uh, so in the end, I decided to pay the extra $86 oh. and uh, just suck it up, buttercup, you know what I mean? And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Roger in Caledon, who also phoned about the Rogers outage that affected 12 million Canadians. Uh, as a former IBM field rep, uh, the answer to this, uh, the, 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 the real answer to the, uh, the system going down for Rogers is, honestly, it's going to happen again and again. It will happen. The real answer is to have a backup I have a Rogers and another cell phone company that I, that I carry, and it, I learned that from IBM. And at IBM, as a field rep, you're going out to clients. They don't want excuses, okay? You're, IBM's charging them hundreds of dollars an hour, and they don't want to hear an excuse that Rogers cell service is down, so I can't do your work for you. It's mm-hmm. unacceptable. Mm-hmm. As, as you can hear from everybody in, in the country saying, this is completely unacceptable. Well, with IBM, they don't... They don't put up with that. They, they make sure if you're a field rep, you have two phones and you don't run into situations like that because right. it really is unacceptable. Right. right? No, thank that, you for that. That is the answer. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.